Good morning. Let's get started. Good morning, everyone. Uh, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel. Um, this morning we'll be picking up where we left off uh, last week in 1 Samuel chapter 10. So we're currently in an important section of 1 Samuel that describes the process by which Israel... Uh, uh, becomes a monarchy led by an earthly king rather than a heavenly one. And last week we were uh, in particular introduced to the first king, Saul, uh, a Benjamite who went out looking for his lost donkeys and came home finding himself anointed king of Israel by Samuel. Uh, We noticed in particular last week that this grand event, the, the selection of their first king, and his anointing took place in secret. And when Saul returned to his household, uh, he didn't mention the fact that um, Samuel had made him king to his family. Uh, Last week we had started into chapter 10 a bit, reading the first um, 16 verses largely to finish this, uh, well, we could call it the donkey story, um, because the resolution of the donkey... Uh, happens in verse 16 and um, in particular the first 16 verses we looked at last week um, we saw the predictive confirmations that Samuel had given to Saul personally to confirm and authenticate to him that God had chosen him to be king Um, today in, in the latter part of chapter 10 we'll see how Saul came to be chosen and acknowledged king publicly after these, uh, this private encounter between Saul and Samuel. So before I start reading um, 1 Samuel 10, let's turn to the Lord in a word of prayer. Almighty God, God of love. Uh, God of a love that isn't like our love, which is fleeting and changing and waxes and wanes. But a God whose love is described as steadfast, enduring, everlasting. Almighty God, we confess our uh, sinful frailty, our quickness to discount you and your work, to reject you, both individually and corporately, in our daily lives. This passage we read today reminds us that you are a God who keeps covenant with his people that though we reject you at moments you do not reject us not because of any worthiness in ourselves but because you have set your love upon us that you first loved us and you demonstrated that love and proved that love to us by the sacrifice of your son Jesus Christ and as we start um, this coming week uh, season of the year that we remember Christ's sacrifice for us and you raising him to new life. Um, Make us mindful of the glorious victory that you won on the cross and your conquering of the grave for us. Uh, Even as um, all Christ's disciples rejected him, turned away from him, he was faithful to the very end. He drank the cup of your wrath to the very dregs. And he, on that cross, showed forth your love for us. Make us uh, mindful of that love and help us to see that love in the scripture passage we have before us. Uh, Make your spirit uh, be among us now to teach us uh, both uh, intellectually but also in our hearts. That you would speak to us and you would continue to renew your gospel truths in our hearts, that we might live them before you. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Alright, so let me uh, just recap by reading um, the first 16 verses of chapter 10 and then into the passage 
um, which is new to us, which starts in verse 17. So I'll read the entirety of chapter 10 for us. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go back on the, from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you. And you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart, and all these things, all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To seek the donkeys. And when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you've rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upwards. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his own home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor, whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? 
And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. So there's one part of um, the first half of this chapter that um, we didn't really get to talk about much last week. And um, I thought we'd start with just this little sort of aside. Um, What does it mean that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Saul and for him to prophesy? What is the purpose of Saul being counted among the prophets? What do we do with this story? Or we just move on because we don't know what to do with it. I mean, if we look at in this chapter, it, you know, this prophesying is taking place as a confirmation of prophecy. You know, Samuel had told Saul, look, three things are going to happen. He's the only one who knows these three, three things are going to happen. They're all personal confirmations to him. Um, three, not, you know, they might have thought these to be random events, but, you know, these are not random events. These are going to be signs to you. That what I've told you is going to happen. That God is going to change you into another man. So it uh, it has this uh, um, sense of confirming, you know, what Samuel said is true by him prophesying. Because Samuel said, "You'll prophesy." And notice of the three signs, this is the only one that's repeated. You know, it says the other ones happened, and we, you know we believe they happened. But this one, it goes into detail about, you know. It gives us the detail of Samuel saying this is what's going to happen and then it gives us the detail of it actually happening. And of the three signs that Samuel gives Saul, this is the only one that um, uh, the book goes into detail in describing. Mike, you had your... It's definitely, I think, intended for Saul to confirm and to prepare him to be king um, and to be a a certain kind of king. Um, One of the things, uh, uh, we might get into this today if we make it to chapter 11, but the Spirit of God coming among him. We see that same phrase in Saul's first action as king. You know, he hears of this atrocity being committed on the other side of the Jordan, and his response, his response is being driven by the Spirit of the Lord coming upon him, and he knows what to do at that moment. So, um, it, you know, this this becoming a prophet uh, might serve as a preparative, you know, to to um, teach him what it is to have the Spirit of the Lord come upon him and how he should respond to having the Spirit's presence. Bill. Yeah, and the, verse 9 emphasizes that fact. God gave him another heart. Um, you know, Samuel said, you'll be changed into another man. And sure enough, God has given him another heart. I mean, this 
the Spirit of the Lord coming upon him um, is making him into a different person. And he's, it's making him into the person that God wants to be king over Israel. Anything else you want to say about George? Yeah. And to think of, of, you know, if we think of this as being his, um, you know, he's been made king in secret and is coming out, uh, you know, the, the first proverbial saying about him has nothing to do about his regalness. It's about being a prophet. I mean, to sort of think of that um, for a moment, uh, you know, the first, his word is, uh, or the first time his name is becoming a word among the people, it's in the sense, is Saul among the prophets? I mean, it's, it's sort of phrased there, uh, you know, they're asking that question. You know, and that's the question. Is Saul also among the prophets? I mean, that's how he's coming into um, the reputation. And we'll see that, you know, his, the majority from of his career from henceforth has nothing to do with prophecy but has to do about his military valor. So, you know, that's why I think you're right. It's sort of addressing the moment but sort of um, looking forward to this future ahead as well. And it's giving us a picture here of the generation of a proverb, and a proverb that, as you say, ultimately doesn't seem to be. I mean, he's not going to become a permanent prophet. Um, it clearly seems to say that he's actually prophesying at this moment, but it's it's a temporary office. He's not assuming the office of prophet uh, permanently. Again, it's in this, um, it, I think this is a key passage in, uh, you know, I mentioned last week that sometimes higher critical scholars will sort of look at this section of 1 Samuel and see it as two different accounts. One that has a very pro-monarchical bent and one that has a very anti-monarchical bent. And some later editor has squished these two things together rather kind of clumsily. Um, but I this is showing that... Uh, you know how these these passages are integrated, and there's going to be something in the second half of the, the chapter that uh, I think also sort of just linguistically that shows they're integrated. But how even though God uh, has been rejected by the people, He's making sure that they know, okay, you want a king, you've rejected me in, in favor of a human king. This is what a human king should look like. This is what a human king should be like. This is what you should really want as a quality in a person who's going to be king. A person who has had their heart changed by God and is God-directed rather than self-directed. These are words from God. So it's, it's emphasizing that you might be rejecting me, and my sovereignty, but even through your king, <laughs> I'm showing my sovereignty. Uh, all right, anything else on the Saul being counted among the prophets? Okay, so let's turn to this. So we've had this private ceremony. Um, 
you know, Samuel sends Saul's servant away so he can just, it's just he uh, and Saul talking and, and, you know, Samuel breaks out the oil, anoints them. Um, so we've had that private moment. Now we get this description of a, uh, a public selection of a king. So why do we need this public ceremony, this ritual of going through this lot process to pick a king when we've already been told, well, Samuel's already anointed him. God's already chosen the king. Samuel's already anointed the king. Now we're going to go through this public spectacle of choosing a king. Why Why the need for this moment? Yeah, if the first event uh, was for for Saul, um, you know, it, it's this is to to get you thinking you're king of Israel. This event seems very much for the people, and you know, it's it's Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. You know, they're the audience, they're the recipients of this uh, event. This is this is event directed toward them. But what's the point of having an event directed toward the people? Maybe they'd say, oh, you know, Samuel, you're not against, you're against this kingship idea anyway. You're picking your own sort of, this isn't from God. So it's to emphasize, I think you're exactly right, Mark, to emphasize that this is a God-directed event. Um, that, uh, that the selection of um, Saul in this way is to remove the kind of... Um, uh, skepticism that people might have. Um, Matthew Henry, uh, the Puritan commentator, put it this way. He knew the peevishness of that people and that there were those among them who would not acquiesce in the choice if it depended upon Samuel's single testimony. And therefore, every tribe and every family of the chosen tribe might please themselves with having a chance for it. He calls them to the lot. By this method, it would appear to the people that Saul was appointed of God to be king in a manner to prevent all disputes and exceptions. So I think that's a, a, a part of it. Uh, you know, sort of thinking of the people that the people will um, will see this is being this is a God-driven event. Um, yeah, we're not told. There's there are a variety of methods for selection by lot, um, and we're not told specifically which method is being used here. So, we're, you know, is it names out of a hat? Is it um, you know, like uh, you know, is there some you know each? Um, usually, they'd be like stones or. or or pebbles or something that would be marked in certain ways. So is there a certain mark that represents Saul's place in the family? Uh, yeah, we're not told ex- explicitly. But it is interesting. Here, you know, you have the lot cast. It comes up Saul. Saul wins. Where is he? <laughs> Bill. Yeah, that this is um, uh, this is God directed. Um, Proverbs sixteen thirty three uh, emphasizes this this point. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. There's nothing random about this selection, and confirming that there's nothing random about this selection, God has ordained the winner <laughs> of this selection and anointed him. Uh, you know, previously in the chapter. So, um, you know, to emphasize that this is God's man. This is the man God has chosen to be king. And 
when we go through the public process of acknowledging that kingship, hey, what do you know? It's the same guy God picked 20 verses earlier. Um, all right, if we think of this occasion as being a, uh, you know, I imagine this is a pretty festive, so this is my imagining. You don't have to buy this. But I'm imagining this is a fairly festive occasion and excitement levels high. We're choosing a king and, um, you know, it could be me um, or it could be somebody from my family. So it's exciting. It's a happy occasion. People are getting their want, their want. And Samuel stands up and addresses his people, and what a downer of a sermon this is. Um, you know, it, you know, recalling the, that this choice of the people, today you've rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. You have said to him, um, the ESV says, um, set a king over us. Again, the emphasis is on a negative there. No, we will have a king over us. You know, it's no, we want a king. We don't want God. We want a king. Um, now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. <laughs> it's like, all right, what a way to start the process off. Um, why does Samuel take this moment to once again emphasize the negative aspects of Israel's um, demanding a king. The emphasis is on bringing the people back to God. And notice this is the second time we've had this Samuel give this kind of address. And, um, and, and the address is emphasizing this history of God's faithfulness to the people. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians. I delivered you from the hand of all the kingdoms that are oppressing you. Uh, it's emphasizing this history of their relationship. And... It's giving God's um, displeasure on this event, and yet the event is taking place, and the person um, God is selecting to be king is being chosen. Um, uh, And I I was really struck by um, Eugene Peterson um, used this phrase that this is showing us a remarkable gospel fact. The people reject God at this moment. But God does not reject the people. I mean, that, that's the gospel. You know, people, these people, no, we want a king over us. And God, through this process, it's, I mean, he could say, you know, all right, go that way, I'll go this way, never the twain shall meet. But they've rejected him, but God still is in relationship with them. God has not rejected them. God still pursues them, raising up a king that uh, that will rule in his stead. That he's still um, sovereign over this process. He's allowing their requests to be filled, but that doesn't mean he supports the motives of the request. Um, it means he's going to let them... Um, Taste and see what it's like to have an earthly king. Um, and I think as Doug says, so that they'll, again, continually return to him. The point is to bring the people back to God. And that emphasis on bringing the people back to God is, um, I think, uh, is, is shown in this selection process. Um, Mike raised earlier this, this, I mean, the thing we all always remember about this passage is Saul hiding among the baggage. Why is Saul hiding among the baggage? And what's the point of telling us that Saul's hiding among the, bas- the baggage? Well, 
Hiding among the baskets. So we, we interpret it as an act of cowardice. Okay. Mary, you had your. Like he's, I mean, again, it, he obviously stands out in the crowd. <laughs> so um, it, it could be that, that he doesn't want to influence. So we've got cowardice. We've got not wanting to influence the process. What else? What else might we? George. I mean, for a guy who um, who we first encounter looking from from lost donkeys, he's certainly going to be a very different person uh, a couple of chapters from now. Even in the next chapter, you know, taking a yoke of oxen and cutting them up into pieces. That's a pretty bloody act. Um, so it could be, again, sort of showing us uh, about um, his character, and in this case, emphasizing how his character is being changed. What else might this? I had uh, I, I had the same sort of response trying to think about is this episode showing us about something about the character of Saul? And as I studied this this week, I realized the scriptures doesn't go in to the details on. I mean, because often scripture gives us a sense of why somebody's doing something. It gives us a sense of motivation. Um, so I, I, I was struck by maybe this isn't about um, this isn't about Saul. Um, that this is again about the relationship between the people and God. I mean, again, to go back to this episode is about um, the people being selected by the king. We turn from Saul for a little bit. He, you know, um, he's going to come back in in a powerful way. But this is about the people. And so notice at this moment, the people have their king. They know who it is. They can't find him. He's lost. What did they have to do to find their lost king? They had to inquire. They looked for him. Can't find them, but God to find them, God has to tell them. And what really struck me, and I think this is one of the reasons, I, you know, I think um, this whole um, splitting the text up into um, pro-monarchy and anti-monarchy is hogwash, because in the previous pro-monarchy passage about Saul searching for donkeys. Saul searching for lost donkeys. He can't find the lost donkeys. What does he do? He inquires of the prophet of the Lord to find out where the donkeys are. Now in the anti-monarchy piece, the people can't find their king. He's lost. It's using the same vocabulary of the donkeys as being used in this passage. They can't find him. What do they do? They inquire of the Lord. Um, it, and... For some reason, I can't remember the specific event from... Um, uh, it, it was somewhere around high school, college age, and I was sort of asserting my independence from my parents and was sort of having, you know, not really a fight, but, you know, like a pretty dramatic standoff. And, you know, like, 
So I leave this encounter, and then I have to turn back and go back and ask for the, if I can borrow the car. <laughs> and then I think I ask for gas money too. And, I, and for some reason, that, that memory sort of came up. And here the people have declared their independence from God. They've rejected God. They've chosen uh, to have a human king. And at that moment of having a human king, they have to go back to God. Um, they have to go back and inquire of God um, in this. So, um, you know, it's the same language. The people are seeking and not finding their king, just like Saul had been seeking and not finding his donkeys. And when both groups are frustrated in their quest, they inquire of the Lord. The people, having publicly rejected God, now go back to God to find their king. And then God graciously again condescends to do for them what they cannot do for themselves. Um, Again, what an amazing picture of God's grace and steadfast pursuit of these people, even at this moment that they're publicly rejecting them. Yeah, this and it's this the the patient loving kindness of God. Um, you know, um, oh, good grief! Um, blanking on the um, there's this um, Charles Petty. He's the singer from North Carolina that um, I got to meet when I was down there. Um, he went to a friend of ours, um, Baptist Church in Chapel Hill, and what um, Charles is a musician. And he's taken the Psalms and sort of and, and tried to to you know come up with you know music for them you know bluegrass kind of music and and he's what's interesting about him is he wants to just not sort of just paraphrase it so it fits his music he wants it to be really accurate and capture you know, the meaning of words so you know here you have this um, Southern Baptist musician um, and he he he's been um, in conversation with the Old Testament professor at Duke, who um, Ellen, um, well, let's just say conservatism is, is not her, but he turns to her and sort of help, gets her to help him work through this. And his, his musical um, rendition of the word for loving kindness is steady love. And I, I, it's always struck me that, that that really it's that everlasting God's love doesn't change. It's steady. Um, um, and so, you know, one of the, for the, um, oh, good grief, help me, um, Jerry, it's the psalm with it repeats, his love endures forever. Um, yeah, 136. So the refrain in, in, in Charles's song is his steady love endures forever. Um, yeah, um, you know, it's just over and over, and that's the picture we see that that God is the steady one in this relationship with Israel. We see their fickleness, we see their trust in a human instru- instrument. Um, I was struck by "Long live the King." I always thought that was sort of like a modern phrase. I was like, "Oh, that's in the Bible? <laughs> really? <laughs> I would have thought that was like medieval England or something." The king is dead. Long live the king. No, it's right here <laughs> yeah yeah, uh, but I just don't want us to see his reluctance get in the way of... I, I don't think the, the highlight is on the reluctance. Um, so I, I, that's just, uh, again, I, I'm not saying that there's nothing being revealed about Saul's character. I'm just saying sometimes we folk jump on that 
detail and sort of miss um, sort of structurally this seems to be putting the emphasis on um, well on Samuel and God in this um, and notice that throughout this passage it's Samuel directing and Samuel is is the one in authority here he's called the people together when they can't find their king he's the one who tells them where the king is and at the end he's the one giving them instructions and then sending them home um, again the emphasis is on um, God directing and controlling this process rather than Saul coming to the forefront and assuming kingly duties. And but maybe it's just my sense of appreciating irony. Maybe there's some real irony here when, when uh, Samuel says, after Saul is found hiding in the baggage, after he physically removed him, Saul says, Samuel says, Do you see who the Lord has chosen? The guy hiding. The guy is a coward. And then, later on, okay, the Bible calls them worthless fellows who say, can this man save us? But maybe they had an insight there that, no, this man can't save us. He has no salvific power. It's only God can do this. And people, don't you see what you've done to yourself? And so, I don't know, I'm, I may be reading more into the text than is there, but these things, I don't miss yeah, no, and these details are there for a reason. Um, the reaction, the worthless fellows, um, this is not, a, they're not, yeah, they're not on Yahweh's side. This is the same phrase used of, um, of Eli's sons earlier. So this is not a, a term um, of people that have insight into the will of God. But I think, uh, I, I do think there's possible irony in this. Um, do you see him... Um, there, you know, this is the one. But notice, it's the one God's chosen. Do you see whom him whom the Lord has chosen? There's none like him among all the people. I mean, emphasizing Saul not as the people's choice, but God's choice. Um, again, it's hard for us to sort of step into this because we know Saul's later story. And to, but to see Saul at this moment as being the person God is putting forward to be king. Um, and maybe it's to teach them about kingship in a negative way. I mean, we can sort of think about that as the story unfolds. But at least at this moment, it's being emphasized that Saul is being given to the people as king. He is God's choice. God has anointed him previously. Um, he's now given a public ritual in which um, the people acknowledge him king, long live the king. We're going to have this whole thing redone in the next chapter and into chapter 12. They're going to acknowledge him king again. <laughs> uh, again, you can see why some... Uh, I mean, and that's why people want to split the passage up. Because they're like, look, here are three different stories about his, how Israel got their king. But I want to emphasize it's sort of um, one story, but showing us the process. First, God has to work on the king himself. Then God has to work on the people and sort of uh, get them to see um, that he is still pursuing them even in the midst of their wanting a king and that he will graciously give them a king. And then the next time we see this, it's going to be after Saul has taken his first kingly actions. So it's sort of this, um, we have a, a king privately, a king in name, and then we're going to see a king indeed later on. So it's, you know, parts of a process. Yeah, is it the power that ends up corrupting him? Um, yeah, to see this moment. Um, and, and if we can think of other, um, again, because I read Exodus <laughs> all the time. Um, you know, Moses, I mean, how much does he drag his feet when God directly calls him? Well, you know, let me give you a reason why I can't do that. Okay, let me give you another reason why I can't do that. No. Uh, let me give you another reason. No, look, I just won't do it. Send somebody else. Um, you know, this, it's not unique for God to choose people um, 
for positions of leadership who themselves um, don't want that. <laughs> George. Yeah, that appearance. Yeah, and you're getting a king like you would expect. And everybody, I mean, Saul looks like a king. And the again, part of um, the book's purpose is, is this explicit comparison between Saul and David. And when it comes to selecting David, it's going to be... The emphasis, we're going to see a similar emphasis on physical appearance, but it's the opposite. You know, Samuel shows up in David's family and, you know, he sees David's brother. You know, it's like, surely this is the king that God's picked in this family. God sent me here to pick a king. Ha! Here he is. You know, tall guy, big, broad shoulders, all Judah football team. You know, that's the guy. And God's like, no, I want the little one. So, I mean... In this comparison, there's going to be this emphasis on um, David lacking the physical appearance that Saul has. Saul looks like a king in a way that that David, when he's selected, doesn't. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe, maybe. I have a remark, but I think I'll hold it to myself. see that and uh, I think we see that throughout Saul's early kingship. Um, we're going to see it next chapter when he goes out into battle. The spirit of the Lord, you know, it emphasizes the spirit of the Lord comes upon him and he's, um, he's able to do these things because the spirit's presence. And then when the people afterwards, because we're going to see um, part of the worthless men coming up is, you know, all right, who are the people that objected to this guy to be king? Let's bring him out here. Let's kill him. And Saul's like, why, why are you doing that? You know, God has given us the victory. It doesn't have anything to do with me. Maybe those worthless... He doesn't say these. Yeah. And that's what they're doing. Saul, we're right. Saul should be king. These guys shouldn't. See, we told you kingship would work. Um, we were at this... Uh, um, um, a fundraising event for Imago last night, and uh, um, it was uh, Irish Kaylee, and so the woman, one woman um, um, who was um, speaking about the fundraising effort, kept like telling Irish jokes, and you know, told the joke about the guy driving around the parking lot and can't find the parking space, and you know, she's like, uh, you know, please, Lord, I'll, you know, if you give me a parking space, I'll give up drinking, and that moment, a parking space right out front pulls out. 
and the person leaves and the guy goes, oh, never mind, God, space just opened up. I don't need it after all. Um, you know, and it's that kind of, you know, ask for something. This is what we want. God gives it to you and like, look, I found it all by myself. <laughs> Yeah, and it's um, you know, and that's why I was just um, those words of Eugene Peterson that this is um, in this passage. This is a remark showing us that remarkable gospel fact once again um, through this story. All right, so next week, um, so we've we've seen Saul being chosen privately king. We've seen Saul publicly acknowledge the king. And next week we're going to see Saul actually step into this role of kingship. But let me close this in prayer. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what a wondrous thing it is that you, the creator and sustainer of all the universe, has also chosen to redeem us, uh, sinful men and women. Uh, men and women who um, often, so often assert our independence only to be driven back to our absolute dependence upon you again and again. Uh, we thank you that you are a God who doesn't just go off or let us go off, but who pursues us. That you haven't let us go even those times that we've released our grip upon you Um, remind us now as we um, come before you to worship that we humble ourselves before you that we rejoice in who you are and what you've done for us that we uh, acknowledge um, as we approach the table that we are fed both physically and spiritually only by your gracious hand and by your continued application of your steady love to us. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.